Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. All right, you know, you know that sound is the unfiltered family against another episode coming your way right here. And right now, this will go down as episode number 245. You could jump on board, 24 and 7, 365. Unfiltered Revolution is easy. Apple, Spotify, everywhere, get your podcasts. Go to the artist formerly known as Twitter, X if you will, at Casey Stern. Give it a follow. Jump up into the bio and follow into the YouTube channel for all of the content on video, the guests, the conversations, the list, the rant, and more. And thank you. Never rant about the Unfiltered Band. And to all of you who are joining us wherever you might be, uh, once familiar face back with us, uh, he is a Mets historian and a lifer like me, which means he's in need of desperate therapy. You can get him at uh, Brian Wright 86 on X. He is, of course, because that's his name, Brian Wright. Brian, uh, happy to have you back, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Casey. It's great to be back on. So today we are going to be palate cleansers for Met fans who are worried about their mm-hmm. offseason and the season ahead. And we are going to do a top 10 list, counting down the top 10 surprises in Mets franchise history. can be players, it can be teams, it can be stories, pretty much anything open to you, which is why you, wherever you are, should chime in, get your comments here, uh, whether on X or on YouTube or Apple, Spotify, and everywhere you get your podcast. Let Brian and I know your thoughts. Of course, we give our thoughts on this team as well. We'll do that in the meantime. We say thank you to Bet Online, your number one source for all your sports betting needs, latest odds, lines, and matchup reports for baseball when it's back, basketball, football, boxing, golf, and more. They're your fastest and easiest way to get your wagers. Live betting and favorite casino and card games, they're all available right now from your phone. So, do yourself a favor, get over to the website, use your mobile device to sign up today, get in on the action, but remember to use the promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, bet online where the game starts as we get started here. So let me open end it and I'll give you my unfiltered take on it. Your assessment of how good, bad, and ugly you feel about where the Mets look right now, we know it's not finished as we do this and tape this on, uh, and this will be out on Monday, January 29th, so maybe on the 30th, because we are talking about all these bad things that have not occurred. They will sign everybody under the sun. They'll trade for Dylan Cease. They will go ahead and sign Justin Turner and J.D. Martinez and everybody else, or they, and they'll, re, they'll lock up Alonzo long-term. But since none of those things have happened, Brian Wright, your thoughts on this offseason at this point? Yeah, I'm kind of like in in a Zen mode, honestly. Um, I haven't really been on X or Twitter, whatever you call it now. Um, I'm kind of content uh, with everything that they've been doing. I feel like since the trade deadline, this is you know pre David Stearns, they've kind of told us what their plan is, long term plan, and that is you know, rebuild, I don't want to call it rebuild, but it's, it's a restructuring. And the word, the term that I've hate, I hate hearing, I hate it being used is punting. I hate like they're punting 2024. I, I've never, you know, I've never assumed that that's what they're doing. So I, I think it's a re, restructuring, a re, you know, organization based on what they've done the last few years, which has been very aggressive to, shorter term older players the scherzers uh the verlanders and now they've gone to a kind of a vision for long term to you know have some sustainable success and you know i i know that 
Steve Cohen, when he started one, you know, had this, you know, three to five year championship window, he kind of sort of laid out, which isn't really the case, but the, the West coast or the East coast Dodgers was kind of the one that I took from that. And that I feel like is what's being done here. Um, and, you know, fans are not going to like it. I mean, I'm certainly, I'm eager. I'm, I'm like everybody else. Um, but I haven't like sat there and like, I can't believe they're doing all this. I think they're just getting pieces that could be, you know, used for the future, whether that's trading or for, for, or trading away later on, you know, if they're not going to, you know, be in contention, I think they will be in contention. Um, but I, I've been content with this and I still think there are moves to make the bullpen. Obviously they're working on that. They got back, got back out of Montevino and they're still going and I would like to see them get another bat, another arm, but there's nothing, nothing that they have done. That's like, I can't believe they did all this. You know, they went after Yamamoto. They gave him the highest offer at the moment. I, I can't be unhappy, but I, I can, I can kind of understand where things have been. Look, I, I think there are two things at play here, and I think it's possible, and I'm going to tell you that it sucks and it's terrible and it's all the bad things everybody wants to say, and it's the right thing to do. And I think both of those are mutually in the same parallel line here. And I don't think that's the part that most fans and a lot of pundits in New York that I hear don't understand. Because they sit there and they say, well, the team sucks. They're not doing enough. They promised this. They promised that. Yeah, they were in on Yamamoto. But outside of that, they haven't done anything. What the hell's Cohen doing? And they're not going to be very good, right? Some of that true, some not. But at the same time, here's the reality. I live in Atlanta. The Braves are really, really good. They're really deep. They're really stacked. And they're really not going anywhere. And that's not even mentioning the Phillies or the Marlins, or anybody else that you want in this division to mention. You're not even close to as good as this Atlanta team. And that's what you're striving to be, because you're striving to win a division and to win championships. And right now, the Braves and the Dodgers are the two best teams in this league, clearly, with LA probably number one, and Atlanta probably not getting enough credit for their chance to be the best team in the National League again, right? The Mets mm -hmm. roster has holes in the bullpen, not nearly deep enough, not nearly good enough. In the rotation, not good enough at the top end, questions on the back end, the middle of the lineup, the depth of the lineup, and you could go on forever. They need to play youth. They need to play the slow game. It's not going to be fun for people to understand that they probably need to maybe outkick their coverage by accident this year, meaning go in as a team that looks like at best they could be a 500 team. And at worst, more likely, if you want my opinion, Brian, I think there are sales the pitch again to everybody else. To your point, they hope Severino pitches well so they could trade him. They hope that Manaya pitches well so they could trade him. They're looking to move pieces at the deadline, be a 75-win team, because who cares if you win 75 or 85? I certainly don't. A lot of Met fans probably say they don't, but they don't understand. So they do, and they're going to complain about every win. I want to win 95, not 85, right? They're going to then go into the next offseason, I think, and push harder. They'll know more about what they get out of their kids, not Alvarez, who we know sort of already, but the Gilberts and the Acunas and the Jet Williams and some of these other guys, right, who they have. They don't have pitching in the system. They had guys who were going to celebrate their 50th birthday. They just had to get rid of in Verlander and Scherzer. And this is just the way that it is. So I, I think it is real that it kind of sucks. They're not that great. They haven't had a great offseason. 
But what do you expect them to do? They're doing what most New York teams would be too afraid to do. And that's mm-hmm. the right thing. And that's why they brought David Stearns in. I, I guarantee you, I mean, I've, look, I haven't asked him, even though, you know, he's the same name as me, except leave off the last S for savings, as they used to say in the old dial mattress commercials. But don't you think that David Stearns, when he came in, was asking them, Brian, hey, look, you do understand, like, we can't just go out and spend money ridiculously, and I'm going to do this the right way. That's what Andrew Friedman, now look, they spend zillions over the years in L.A., but when Friedman got there, it was trying to figure out how to do it, how to take what he learned with the Rays with no money. And by the way, he had Alex Anthopoulos and Josh Burns and all these other guys in his. And that's what David Stearns is going to do. He's going to build people in his front office. He's going to build people at the major league level. They got a first year manager. I, to me, the expectations are just too high from fans. Of course. Oh, yeah. And I think that's I would rather I'm not saying I'd rather go into a season with no low expectations, but um I would rather have that and be pleasantly surprised to an to an extent than last year where I expected more. And obviously we were all disappointed. Um, you know, I, I I fully expect like if they are a 500 team that they would be more sellers than buyers trying to like, you know, just go go crazy and trying to get a wild card spot. Um, that's probably not that would not fit into what this vision appears to look like or looks like and you know the dodgers going back to when they went under new management in like what was it 2012 um i think what i'm trying to remember when they won their first division it was not a you know right away they started you know winning 100 games or or contending for the world series um i mean i think maybe it's like you know 2014 2015 they started uh being contention so it takes you know it takes time and that you're right i don't think most old Mets teams or most, if they were in this same position, uh, would have taken this stance. Um, they would have done, they would have made silly moves for older players with bad contracts that would have hamstrung them for years. And it's just not the right time to do it. And, you know, they went for it for, for a couple of years and it didn't work. I mean, 2022 worked out to, to an extent, 23 did not work out and now they're they i i remember when they when they they did a you know that sell job and i was just like okay i kind of get this now and it sucks but it you kind of understood the situation and they haven't wavered from that and i mean david stearns i've heard like you know from the the time this is when i stopped going off twitter or stopped going on twitter is when they when they were questioning some people were questioning if david stearns was doing a good job i'm like he hasn't been the general he, manager for an actual game. Yeah, he just got here, and and and, and that's, that's the thing. Yeah. It is is Met fans are nuts. They're all crazy. Yeah. They all they're all nuts. And I, look, I love you all, even the ones that I can't stand because I get it. But they're all nuts. So today's yeah. a palate cleanser. We're gonna go through and. You're the historian. I'm sitting here and you know, I, I'm trying to be judgmental. There's no right or wrong. I like to bandy with you at his will. We'll banter about kind of maybe who should be higher or lower. We together put together the top 10 best surprises because there have been times and we'll go through some of them and players and we'll go through some of them that we never thought would be dot, dot, dot. And they were. So maybe, just maybe, 2024 is going to be added to this list if we do it again next year. But let's start with your honorable mentions before we get to the top 10. Who's in the honorable mention category in your list? Well, I think I, you know, um, Mike Jacobs is the 
first one, I would say. I'm trying to remember what the other one was. It the other one was that uh was that well, Todd I Huntley? You, I, I thought you hit did you oh okay, yeah, you had Todd Huntley in what ninety six yeah. and look Todd Huntley in 96, general. 96 season. Yeah, the ninety six yeah. season. And we originally had we originally had Jacobs at ten, and I I scoffed a little bit, not much, because I had asked you, and it was my revisionist history. I didn't remember how much he did the Diamondback series. I remember it was like a four game series. Mm -hmm. I feel like where I how many home runs did he hit in that series? I don't even remember it. It's like you remember four. It seems like it was eight, just because it was so many years later, and I just remember him coming hitting all those home runs, but. His rest of that season, before he ended up going to Miami at the time, Florida, which was in the Delgado deal, right? Mm-hmm, Wasn't that mm-hmm. right yep. when That's he exactly got right. traded? Yes. So, so what? Get, remind me, what was the rest of that season? That run, Jacob. So, so to go back to that Diamondback series, um, so he actually hit a home run in his first game. Was it like his first at bat? If I'm can't, if I'm remembering correctly, he was he. Yeah, he had one at bat, a pinch hit home run in his first at bat in the major leagues against the nationals at Shea stadium. And then he went to, and then he was human for a day. He went over four in Arizona and then he hit a home run and then he hit two home runs, drove in six RBIs, those two, those two games um, for the rest of the season. I think he had, if I, I think I told you this and I'm forgetting now, as I go to baseball reference, seven home runs over the final 87 at bats, seven home runs, 14 RBIs, um, batted 276. But, you know, I mean, who no one would have expected that. And I don't really remember Mike Jacobs as being a, a, a major, major prospect. So, um, so yeah, that's why I thought about him. And then, yeah, he was, he was kind of used that short period of time was kind of used as a bargaining chip for, for Carlos Delgado. I mean, there are more pieces involved, but um who knows if, if Mike Jacobs fizzled, would Carlos Delgado happen or they'd probably use someone else for Carlos Delgado? I, I remember, and this is, you know, at, there are a lot of points in this season, spoiler alert, that may be on here and things relating to the 2015 season as we get into the list at number 10 with the Cespedes trade. I remember being on MLB Network Radio on Sirius XM with Steve Phillips and Jim Bowden doing our live coverage at the time of that trade deadline. And I remember sitting there and I'm trying to remember the other deals that were David Price was traded towards the that last hour of that deadline was crazy in general. And things were coming mm-hmm. across the wire. And then here came Cespedes being traded. And you didn't know really what to think about Cespedes because at the time we had what Detroit, we had Boston, we had Oakland, played for a lot of teams. You know, is you know, he's he's kind of really talented. But can he really, does he play defense? Does he pay attention all the time? Does he care? There were all these kind of things that were were on there. But the Mets, for people who do not remember, went into a Sunday night baseball game in the middle of that season with Soup Campbell and John Mayberry Jr. hitting 3-4, 4-5 in your batting order against the Yankees on a Sunday night game. Legitimately, that actually happened. And there are people right now who are Met fans who are young being like, who the hell are those guys who don't even know who they are, Right. Yeah, that is how yeah. bad that team was offensively. We are talking about a brutal, disgraceful, disgusting offense, and here came Cespedes. So between the trade and then what he did following, and specifically to Drew Storin in those six games against the Nationals, that really were the key games that knocked out Matt Williams and that team, deservedly so, I think for me, bumping Cespedes in that trade in at number ten on our list. Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, you were you were on MLB Network Radio. I was. 
I had an office job and there was a guy who was there temporarily from Long Island and huge Mets fan. And we remember he had thickest New York accent, forget his name, but we talked about them. This was in like the summer. We talked about the Mets. We talked about trades and all that. And, and coming toward the trade deadline, and if, if people remember that week, that was the Wilmer Flores crying. That was the uh, Familia gave up the home run in between two rain delays. I mean, that was the I, the trade for um, what Conforto was called up maybe before that. Um, the trade for Juan Uribe and uh, Kelly Johnson. So I mean, just a, just an avalanche of stuff happened that week, and all culminated with not only the Cespedes trade, but then the Wilmer Flores home, walk-off home run against the Nats. I remember I was in this office and we talked about trades and Jay Bruce was kind of the the, the one at first that was considered even up till the July 31st. And obviously next year they'd get him. But I remember saying they should go. I said, I said, the guy I really want is, is you want a Cespedes from, from Detroit, of course. And that was, and I remember just going Twitter, just like, just refreshing, refreshing, refreshing up till four o'clock, up till four o'clock. Oh my God, did they get them? Did they get them? Uh, and yeah, that was, um, that was fun. Just like <laughs> not working and being in, you know, the office, just looking at Twitter for the, for the, for the entire afternoon. And yeah, I mean, it just, that, that nationals that night was the Wilmer Flores walk off. Then they had a comeback against the next, the next night. Then they had the Sunday night game, which they had, I think they had three home runs in an inning. And the Mets were off. I mean, they had tied for first place, and they were off in August and September. Um, and I was at those three games in Washington in September, and those were, those are the most fun three games I've ever been to uh, in my Mets fandom. So, what Cespedes did, and and also that was a time when Mets fans didn't know if the Mets would be that aggressive. You know, we've we'll talk about other times in which they we didn't think they'd be uh, so aggressive uh, in whether it's you know in transactions. But that was a time like, oh, are the Mets going to do this, or are they just going to stand pat? And they did it, and and look what happened. And you know, you can say whatever you want about Cespedes afterwards, <laughs> but that that three month period was 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 well worth it. In 1996, at number nine, a guy who was considered to be a spunky sort of a spark plug center fielder in Lance Johnson, who would be possibly a leadoff hitter who could maybe help the Mets ended up having a career year that I don't even think a lot of people really remember. And I looked up just to give you some of the craziness of the surprise of Lance Johnson of 96 and what he became. He had never led the league in stolen bases, but he did average 37 over his career until 1996 when he stole 50. He hit 21 triples, which was his fifth triples title. But he did so hitting 333 on the year and making his first and only trip to the All-Star game. In this season, he struck out only 40 times in the whole year. As a leadoff guy hitting 333, who was not on this team long, because for those who don't remember, and I'm trying to remember, what, what was it the next year the Brian McRae deal was at the following year? that he gets traded, right, for BMAG. And I think Mel Rojas was Wait, in that oh, trade also. This is a crazy trade. I mean, not crazy in that it was, like, convoluted. It's just so many people. I'm going to I'm gonna read it off to you. Yeah. Uh, so August 8th, 1997, uh, according to Baseball Reference again, uh, traded to the Cubs for Brian McRae, Mel Rojas, and Turk Wendell. 
That's and right, the Mets got that. And the Mets, um, and the uh, let's see, and then the Mets sent Mark Clark and Manny Alexander to the Cubs six days later to complete the trade. I don't understand. Uh, anyway, I don't know if that was a player's to be named later. Yeah, Mark yeah, heroic yeah. pinch hit. Oh, I, you know what? I didn't. Manny uh, Alexander, yeah. middle, I, middle infielder extraordinaire as well. Yeah, but <laughs> I should have heard. But, but Lance sentence. Johnson. Yeah. No, but I remember, you know, John Olrood, when he came over, you know, Galata Mets marks at the time with batting average and some of the things that he was doing. But but the fact that Lance Johnson was was doing this and having the kind of year he had, it always stuck out to me as one of those like because the, the craziest part, maybe part of the surprise was that it happened and then he was gone. Like he was there yeah. and you go look at his career, a nice career, but it was his career year. He came in and then he was gone and that was it. And he never had another year even close to oh. that. I mean, he, he, I mean, right after that, the next year he had, so he had in 96, you talk about 21 triples. Um, you talk about only striking out 40 times, 50 stolen bases. He had two, he had 227 hits led the league. He never, the next year he had 126. I mean, he played in 111 games, but, uh, and then he just, he didn't have more than a hundred. And he was like with the White Sox, good player, led the American league in hits in the year before stole, you know, had 12 triple led the league in triples before four times before that um, had, you know, 40 stolen bases, 30, 30, 40 stolen bases, but not, he didn't have the, all of it put together like he did with the Mets that year. And I remember that 96 year, the Mets, the 96 season, the Mets were not good as they were supposed to be. Yeah. But they had Hunley. We talked about Hunley, Lance Johnson. They had Bernard Gilkey who had a great year and his career year. Um, But they just, (laughs) as you could tell, they they didn't pitch it. Um, But yeah, it was just amazing. Had three guys who had career years and they just did nothing with it. So it just adds to the kind of the, the kind of the craziness of that season of that 96 Mets team. You mentioned number eight. Um, you, you mentioned pitching. And at number eight, to me, and this is fairly recent, and I I know people are going to scoff at this because I feel like now there, there's an angst towards Max Scherzer because of how he pitched against the Padres. There's an angst towards Max Scherzer because a lot of Met fans feel like, you know, in some ways he was like, well, if you're not going to be good enough, get me out of here. And then was traded. <clears throat> he wasn't good enough or wasn't healthy enough before then. And what was the oblique situation? It didn't end up the way that it was leading into really. Look, you go into September in that year one and Max Scherzer was like the darling of all darlings. And to me, I think the Scherzer signing and the surprise of it belongs on this list. And anybody who tells me, well, how could you be surprised when they offered, what, $130, $140 million, whatever it was, and to a guy that age? It's because nobody, absolutely no one, no one on earth thought Max Scherzer would take the Mets money. It didn't matter that it was Steve Cohen. It didn't matter that it was that much money. He'd take it somewhere else. He'd go back to the Dodgers, where I know he's kind of flat at the end of the year, but he could have gone back there. Or San Diego, who, remember, tried to trade for him in the first place and wanted him and was in that with the Mets, among other teams. This is Max freaking Scherzer, big game pitcher extraordinaire. And the fact that that guy voluntarily, not in a trade, I don't care how much money, was taking Mets money, that is one of the biggest shocks to me in my entirety of my time being a Mets fan and belongs on this list at number eight. 
yeah, it's it's exactly it's the signing. It's not exactly what happened afterwards. It's the fact that like he signed with the Mets. I mean, what was the 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 reputation? I guess I don't know if it's gone or not. I don't think any kind of Mets joke will, will ever go away. But it was like no one wants to come to the Mets. Who wants to come to this team? And yeah, I know it's money. It, you put in a lot of money, but still, we, I mean, would not have thought that Max Scherzer would have said, "Okay, I'll come." Uh, you know, I mean, even for that, you know, even if it's so much money, um, yeah. I mean, I have angst toward him. I, you know, I just I did not like the way it ended, or his attitude, or even the way he left. Um, and you're right, like he, you know, let's not forget the game to clinch the playoff spot in Milwaukee. I think he pitched six. It was six perfect innings. It might have been. Um, it was terrific, and like. Even even with Texas in the World Series, when he have uh, he had an injury, and obviously he's now out for for half the year in Los Angeles, twenty twenty one had you know the dead arm. Um, it always kind of flatlined, um, but you know the and in retrospect, like okay, maybe that was not I don't know, maybe it was I don't want to say a waste of money, but but let's just the signing itself and doing what they did. But the fact that the Mets have never done anything to that extent where they went after the biggest fish and the fish being a pitcher and putting that, putting themselves out there like that, um, that to me is a landmark. I think we'll look back at that as kind of a kind of a landmark uh, deal in Steve Cohen's ownership. Um, even even now, I still I still think that. At number seven, the 1984 season and. While 86 was 86, and then it became the other side of a surprise and disappointing the way it ended with the Dodgers in 88 and the dynasty not being a dynasty and all of that. No matter how much youth was there and how much excitement there was about some of those young players, and I think about primarily what Dwight Gooden did in that season in 84, that season kind of just happened so fast. And when I think back to my time as a kid being a Met fan, it was like it almost was happening too fast and then you thought the ride would never end and of course it vaulted up you know the climax of it in 1986 but 1984 number seven on our list brian yeah and i think it's there's a lot of factors um that went into the fact that the mets were were how many games like 20 22 games better 22 wins better uh from 83 dwight gooden obviously being at the top of that list um i mean you could I don't. Th- I don't think. I don't care how good he did in in Triple A at the you know at the end of the '83 season. No one could have foreseen what what happened in '84. Um, so in in fact, he could. I guess he could be lumped into this. I mean, he should be. Um, Keith Hernandez, his first full year with the Mets, really taking leadership of the team, being the veteran presence with a bunch of young players. Um, Daryl Strawberry's first full season, um, and kind of all of that coming together led to really putting them in, them in contention into the end of the season. I think they, I don't know how many games they finished away from the Cubs, but um, 90 wins, 90 and 72. Let's face it, most years today, that would get you into the playoffs. And who knows what would happen with an ace pitcher. I'm not saying that the Mets would would have done anything, but different time, you never know. So um, I don't, I can't imagine any, I think if people could have imagined the way they were building prospects that the Mets could have um, improved from 83, but, I don't think anyone could have predicted that. Yeah, you know, to me, <clears throat> there are certain 
moments that kind of eclipse anything as a Met fan that you have. And most of them are on the field, like watching Dwight Gooden in 1984, like some of these other ones we're going to talk about that are on the field. To have a moment like at number six with the Mike Piazza trade, where I remember where I was. I remember calling every single person I knew. And I, I, I don't know how many days it took me to come down from the high I was on because I couldn't believe it. I remember the only negative thought I had, and I remember this, going back to the day of the deal, the only negative thought I had that whole week was Todd Hundley at the time was my favorite Met, and I knew that was the end. <laughs> and I felt bad for him because, even though I didn't think I'd have to see him in left field, I felt bad for him because he had been the best Met during a time where there weren't any good Mets, and mm-hmm. he, he had been such a fan favorite. And he kind of just got discarded. It was fun watching that little end of that season, that series against the Astros where kind of they were close and they almost made it and they kind of both playing. It was that really mm-hmm. small snippet. But to find out that Mike Piatra, after his what five legendary days with the Marlins or whatever it was, um, that he was getting traded to the Mets. Was it Preston Wilson? I'm trying to remember who was even in that deal. Was Preston Wilson in that, right? Wasn't he a big part oh. of that deal? I believe. Um, I think so. And then, right? um, God, there was some guy who, named. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who else was there, but I think Preston Wilson Jeff. was one of the. One there was of a the guy named Jeff with a G. But to <laughs> me, the idea of Mike Piazza being a Met after watching him all those years in LA, and no, there are seminal moments. I remember when they signed Pedro, right? I remember as a Nick fan when they within two days signed Allen Houston, Larry Johnson, and Chris Childs, and I was like, okay, the team's suddenly going to be good again. This was one of those moments where you knew your your franchise as a fan, your life was about to change. At number six, as Mike Piazza became a man. Yeah, the trade was for Preston Wilson, uh, Ed Yarn, Ed Yarnall, Yarnall, Ed Yarnall, yeah, um, yep. and uh, Jeff, Jeff with the G, Jeff Getz. G-O-E-T-Z. There's your trade. I think that worked yeah, out. Wilson, what are um, they, some highs in, in Florida and then go to St. Louis and uh, be part of a, a team in the playoffs, but I don't really think anybody was feeling bad watching uh, him go. I mean, it's what do you remember about your feeling as a Met fan when he became a Oh, Met? I loved Mike Piazza when he was a Dodger. He was one of my favorite players as a kid. I mean, I was like, you know, 10 years, 10, 11 years old. And Mike Piazza was one of, one of my favorites. So kind of it was i would call it because obviously <laughs> much older but francisco and i love francisco and was in cleveland and when you heard that was out of nowhere when i was like francis francisco and is coming to the mets he's like one of my favorite players you know outside of the mets so uh it was very it had similar vibes to that except for the fact that it was one of those situations where it was like the eight what was it the week or something where he was in florida uh, with florida and you knew that the Marlins were going to ship him somewhere else. And the Mets, you know, needed a catcher at the time. Um, they just needed a superstar. They were this team that was like, okay, they're 97, 88 wins. They got one, you know, got close. Um, they needed that extra push. And that was my Piazza. And I remember, I don't think I was listening to WFAN being, you know, listening in DC, but I remember hearing the fact that 
this shows like how you know way too baseball mature i was i was probably reading the the internet and reading that steve phillips said on mike and the mad dog that no he's not coming to the mets like we're not making this trade and i was so i wasn't say anger i was disappointed i was like why are we not doing this and what was it a couple days later um there then it, then it happened i remember i don't remember where i was when i heard it um but yeah, that was, uh, I was kind of like you. I was just so, I just couldn't believe it. And yeah, I, I was dumbfounded. I, yeah. It's one of those moments where you, you even though you were sleeping, like you, you're a big kid, even if you were like 50 at the time, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't that yeah. old. Um, at, at number five, we got one of three seasons on this list. We did 84. 2015. And we, you know, we talked about it. I, I want to leave some playoff end of it, you know, alone because we'll get into it. But the season as a whole was so crazy. And to me, I, I, I keep going back and I know I said this before. They were so bad. This was this was a mediocre team with no offense. This was not a good baseball team. They were not as good as the Nationals. The Nationals, if the Nationals, I, I say this all the time. No offense to Matt Williams, dot, dot, dot. If they had made the move to Dusty Baker in July of that year, the Mets don't win this division. Matt Williams threw Drew Storen out there to basically just be a whipping boy for Cespedes. I mean, it was amazing how many times Cespedes was crushing him and how many times he would go to Drew Storen. Jordan Zimmerman could be just blowing the doors off the Mets, and Drew Storen would be in the game for no reason. Those six games at the end of that year, which the Mets won them all, were the biggest difference maker. People don't remember, the Mets ran away with this division. They were behind like the whole time. At the deadline, they might have been two and a half out or something like that, but they were still behind and they ended up winning this division by like a handful of games. It was amazing how just in a span of like six to eight weeks, they completely just outplayed the Nationals and won this East. That to me was the biggest surprise. It wasn't just before the season, Brian, and then the team was good, right? It was for most of the year they weren't good. And then all of a sudden they were freaking great. And that to me was just a shock. That, that season totally took me by surprise. And I think, and I always say this, a lot of Met fans never really enjoyed this season as much as they could have, because I don't think they realized what was happening while it was happening. Cause no one thought the team was any good most of the time. Yeah. And I think just the fact is, as you pointed out, the nationals were so underperformed so much. I remember that that was the year they got Scherzer, Max Scherzer before the season. And let's face it. I think they were world series favorites. If I don't know, I came and look back. Um, but a lot of people thought the Nationals were going to win the World Series in 2015, or they were certainly a heavy contender. And they, as bad as the Mets were, I mean, they were kind of in it in terms of the division up to the trade deadline we talked about, and they got Cespedes. And of course, you know, they're only three games back because then the, that series in late July happens. They win all, they sweep the Nats, they're tied. And then we, we talked about August and September and what they did there, and they won the division. I wasn't even, I mean, it was a week to go in the season when they clinched it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was not just the fact that the Mets pulled away. It was just the fact that the net, there was not, no one kind of giving them any real pushback. Um, and they had, you know, young pitchers, which, uh, as we all know, they had the, the, you know, the young aces, but they just could not hit. And it was just no one to support them. And 
not only like did Cespedes spark was the spark plug, but other, you know, other players really, you know, came up, came up, to, you know, stepped up as we'll, we'll talk about. Um, and, but yeah, it was just, uh, I was more surprised than anything. And the last, you know, August, September was the most enjoyable time I've ever had watching the Mets. I feel like that was the one time I definitely, you know, took it all in and enjoyed it for what it was. And I know that before that, uh, it was, it was as frustrating as, as any, as anything. Um, but it's, yeah, I think the bigger surprise was the fact that they just won by, by they won going away. It wasn't even like a race down to the end. We're going to get more into 2015 in a bit. So hang tight at number four. I, I want to put into context because I think there are going to be people who are going to say, well, this can't be bigger than like, you know, all the things three, two, and one have something to do with postseasons and runs and parts of runs. And this can't be better than 2015. And it can't be better than that. I'm looking at it as rating surprises. I could make a case that this was a bigger surprise at four than anything else on the list. I wouldn't because I wouldn't put it ahead of the three because it didn't mean as much to the Mets necessarily to the franchise. But if anybody would have told you before the season in 2015 or even during, hey, this is going to happen, you would have considered it highly unlikely if you told them all the events and they would have probably never believed it. Piazza never believed it. But I think they would have been more concerned with your mental stability if you told them that at number four, R.A. Dickey would win a Cy Young. I think they would have been more concerned with how many arms you had a medicine cabinet. And if you were drinking too much, honestly, if you had said to them, hey, look, don't worry, we're going to get the Cy Young this year. Well, who in the staff? R.A. Dickey, the knuckleballer, the failed knuckleballer who hasn't been good anywhere is going to win a Cy Young. I still don't think we properly understand just how crazy it is that this even happened. Like I remember watching and going to those games and the sellouts and just we're watching a knuckleball. Now granted it was faster than some of the other knuckleballs, but like no one could understand what was happening when it was happening, Brian. It and yeah, I always say this, it wasn't just one year. He did have another good year at least, maybe it was two. But that Cy Young year is the craziest thing because no knuckleballer can win a Cy R.A. Dickey, who the hell is R.A. Dickey? It was amazing and the, to watch. Yeah, I mean, in 2010, he was he had a good year. He was uh, in 26 starts, had a 2.84 ERA, um, 138 ERA plus. But yeah, 2012, I mean, he had two straight one-hitters. I mean, and he could have had a no hitter. Was it like David Wright made an error or David Wright yes. made a, what could have been an error? Yeah. That's in Tampa Bay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I propose we need to bring, there need, needs to be more knuckleballers in the league. That's just my opinion. But um, I, I just love watching knuckleball pitchers, but, um, but no, I mean that, that was so far fetched to just, I mean, no, and just his personal story and what he overcame to get there. Um Makes him one of the, I mean, I mean, it may be the most unlikely Cy Young winner war, award winner ever. And he was, ever. Was, it has he, to be. he was on the Mets in 2012 when they didn't do anything. And it's just, and, and I, as ruthless as it sounds, when they were, you know, in the offseason, I'm just like, knowing where the Mets were, 
It's like they need to trade him because <laughs> his value will never get any higher than it, than it will be at this point. And then, then they and then they did for the the with to the Blue Jays for the for Syndergaard and um, Travis Darno. So uh, I thought that was a, a good move as much as that's like a very callous baseballish move, um, considering what Ari Dickey meant and 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 what he overcame. Um, it was definitely the right baseball savvy move. At number three, I, I had the pleasure of covering a lot of really cool things that I got to witness. And it's weirder when you're there watching it, I think, sometimes because you just kind of like the atmosphere and everything else. It, it just you don't really have the time to assess it. So it, it's almost like you're living in some alternate reality. But watching Murph Tober and the Daniel Murphy run, which we have at number three. And watching that series against the Cubs and being there for those games, that was, you know, look, he had a home run. You go back to the Dodgers series. Let's start there. He'd always hit home runs off Kershaw, even though he was left-handed. He'd always been good against really good pitching. He'd always had really good at-bats. But this was not a power hitter. Cespedes had carried this team to get to that point in the postseason. And then kind of fell apart. We have to remind anybody the circuitous, circuitous route in which he took to what is that Alcides Escobar to open that game one. The triple, if you want to call it that, right? But Daniel Murphy putting this team on his back and becoming Babe Ruth, literally. The guy who had played outfield and then couldn't do that was murfing the ball all the time at second base. I mean, my gosh, you couldn't find a, you know, a worse defensive middle infield than him and Wilmer Flores. And how that team was even finding itself in postseasons in general was crazy. Maybe the worst middle def infield defense that ever performed primarily in a postseason. But Daniel Murphy in that run and what he did in that Cup series, it's the craziest thing. I mean, in watching it, I just couldn't understand how it was happening. And I don't know that I've ever seen anybody that locked into a zone. He was spitting on pitches and just staring at them like no, no twitching, no flinching, nothing. Just eyeing curveballs that that were good pitches that bounce into the dirt. Like there was no way he was going to swing at anything that was not in his zone at that time. That's as locked in as I've ever seen a hitter. That's not a Barry Bonds level kind of a hitter who's locked in all the time. Murph Tober at number three. Yeah, and and there may be some pushback because the next two seasons he hit twenty five home runs with the Nats. Of course, hit twenty five and twenty three home runs. I don't it, even if he hit twenty five home runs in twenty fifteen and then went on that run. I would still go, I would still go. This is crazy. Like what is going on? To hit six home runs in consecutive games is unprecedented. And he hit 14 during the regular season, which makes it even more impressive or just more out of the blue. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, it was probably a sign sort of of things to come. But, again, you can't equate the two. You can't equate 162 games hitting 25 homers to hitting six in six. So, um, yeah. I mean, it was just – I was just dumbfounded watching it. I think everyone was. Um And it seems like, you know, you always have these postseasons where one player just is locked in. And he was as locked in as anyone ever. I mean, I, I think I wrote in one of my books was he was Babe Ruth and Reggie Jackson rolled into one and it's Daniel Murphy um, and whatever you want to say about his defense and his base running. And I remember he made that great base running play after a walk in game five against the Dodgers. And in retrospect, I'd be like, 
okay, so maybe he's just like he's transformed into something else where he can now run the base as well. He's hitting home runs. Um, yeah, for that period up until like the World Series started, and you know what that error he made in what was it Game Four? Um, there was a, that stretch. I was like, I thought he was invincible and and could have carried it a little bit further, but um, we'll take that 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 period where he carried it to the World Series. At number three, Murph Tober. At number two, just one name, and it's got a lowercase d, uh, DeGrom. I know that Met fans are, I don't know why they can be salty necessarily. I mean, look, um, you know, things DeGrom said, or they didn't think he wanted to be in New York enough, or I could tell you all that, they could think about all that. I mentioned, you know, the certain guys who brought an event nature to Shea and then to City Field. Mike Piazza, right? Pedro Martinez did that. Jacob DeGrom brought that back to the Mets. It was, you know, the irony and the surprise of DeGrom to me comes in so many facets. You can go from a former shortstop at Stetson to the fact that to me, if you go to Harvey, DeGrom, and Syndergaard when that was a thing, everybody had DeGrom third. Everybody. Harvey was everybody's favorite. Thor was everybody's like fan favorite in terms of like the phenomenon that he was with the helmets and all that stuff and the hundred mile an hour fastball. And then there was this DeGrom guy with the long hair who's kind of good. And then here he is in every big spot. Here he is in every big game. Here he is putting together seasons like the Mets had not seen since Tom Seaver. And to me, the most dominant pitcher I've ever seen is Pedro Martinez. I got to watch him. I was in college in Boston at the time. And that 99-2000 season, the best back-to-back seasons, I think, in the history of this sport because of that era and the division he's pitching in. No offense to Sandy Koufax or Bob Gibson, who are the other two of those dominants, or Greg Maddox, who was dominant in general. But you could make a case that Jacob deGrom had time periods of six months, a year, two and a half years in some stretches, depending upon what numbers you want to pick, that he was just as dominant as any of the guys I just mentioned. With, with a repertoire, none of those guys had. Because, you know, Pedro was dynamic with that changeup, and it was as good a changeup as I've ever seen. And yeah, he that was really good. But Rom dialing up 101, and then dotting sliders at 93. Nobody... I've never seen anybody pitch that way. We saw Matt Harvey pitch that way for about 30, 34 seconds, and people thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen. DeGrom pitched that way for like five seasons. If he doesn't get injured and it happens consistently, it's one of the greatest runs in the history of baseball on a mound. And Jacob DeGrom, to me, belongs with his lowercase at number two. I mean, if 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 we talk about... Like if I told you when it ha- when it you know when when it was first before it happened like this will happen and you would have thought you know we talked about for Ari Dickey he's going to win Cy Young you're like like okay how much have you been drinking how much you know <laughs> what are you on I think if you had said Jacob you know we talked about the all the pitchers even you could even put Steven Matz in there I mean the hometown favorite I mean they people would have put him probably also in that ahead of Jacob Degrom if you would have said Jacob Degrom when he was called up. In May 2014, as like bullpen help for I think Dylan G. And then Dylan G. got injured, and he was like emergency starter in a Subway Series game against the Yankees at City Field. At that time, I think like Rafael Montero was the bigger prospect. 
it was like, oh, he'll he'll he's going to be the star. He's going to be the the kind of the the bigger, more standout pitcher um, than this Jacob Degrom guy, whoever he is. And had a great outing against the Yankees. Um, didn't get any run support, so that's uh, yeah, that set the tone. Um, but yeah, if you had said like Jacob Degrom will then uh, <laughs> will go do exactly what he did when two straight Cy Youngs become the most basically put about the the best stretch of pitching that we've seen since I think Pedro Martinez, I would agree with you. I would never would have imagined that. I mean, no one would have imagined that. And he was that, you know, he, I mean, was that like Ferrari who you would see go out on the racetrack and go, Oh my God, I've never seen this with his, you know, the fastball and the accuracy with the fastball and the slider. I mean, it's uh, I mean, I, whatever you might have feel where, however you feel after he left, um, you know, I think you have to appreciate what he did do when he was when he was here. I mean, I again, I never would have considered anyone being in the same category as Tom Seaver. And I'm not saying Jacob Degrom is the greatest pitcher in Mets history, but now you could you could actually make some kind of case of why Jacob Degrom might be better than Tom Seaver, even though it's not true. The fact that you could have a conversation, I think, speaks to how great a great a surprise that was, knowing where Jacob Degrom started. Number one on a list like this is easy when you do it with this team, because I always think about, to me, the greatest upset in the history of sports, I don't even think it's double or greatest surprise, you want to say, in the history of sports, are the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team in Lake Placid. And fittingly, Al Michaels at the end, which everybody famously remembers, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Season in your team is defined by a moniker of being a miracle. That tells you just how big a surprise it is, and I think says it for it. 1969 was a year where the Mets had come in in their first in their previous seven seasons, never finished higher than ninth place in that ten-team National League before, of course, that first divisional play season in 1969. That's how bad they were. The franchise had had no success. There were no dreams. There were no visions of grandeur. There was nothing there was no hope and then the miracle happened that is our number one on our list 1969 yeah i think looking back and if you you know when you look back and say oh this is a team that had tom siever jerry kuzman they had a young nolan ryan maybe not developed the way he would be in anaheim or houston or whatever or you know or texas um but if you know you could look back and go oh, they had you know they had gil hodges as manager that I don't care if, the, if you have those three great pitchers, you have a great manager, um, you have a, uh, it's not, it's not even conceivable um, that it even, I still think it's not conceivable looking back to go like, how did they win a hundred games? How did they beat the Orioles who had 109 wins um, and win the world series, you know, pretty in five games um, with the lineup they had um, the way Gil Hodges maneuvered that lineup and played it to the, to its, you know, highest capabilities with his, way of uh, adjusting um but yeah i mean it's it's you could have expected probably if you were <laughs> before 19 the 1969 season i think there were 101 odd you know they had 101 odds to win the world series i guess that's plus 10,000 if you're in um if you're looking on fanduel or bet online i should say i shouldn't say fanduel um <laughs> but it's just it's yeah you would have just never had, had imagined that and even considering what these pitchers would turn into um it's not you know no team is uh, ever you know 
carried by only a couple people. Um, you need other things to happen. You need, let's face it, like, you know, the Cubs to collapse. You need the Mets to get as hot as they ever had gotten in their history. Um, a team that had never been in first place until September 10th of that year. Um, I mean, they were even above 500. There was like a certain point in the year which they had never been above 500 and they exceeded that in like, you know, it was like June or something like that. Um, and then to, you know, I, like I said, the Cubs collapse, they get hot. And then everything that went down in the, you know, sweeping the Braves in the, and then the Orioles series with, you know, bounces going your way, making great catches, Tommy Agee, Ron Sabota. Uh, the shoe polish, the comeback in game five. Um, I think not only the the results, but the way it happened. Um, that's what sets this over a top, sets this over the top. It's not just the fact that they won the World Series. Let's face it, a, a, a true, just kind of, uh, you know, incredible happening, but kind of the events. Well, that especially if you're that a surprise result. in itself. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, as yeah. a surprise so it's itself, just like all- the Mets could win a World Series. Yeah, it's a, it's a special it's a special season and a special run. And you know, while I don't think anything in 2024 is going to end up on this list, you never know. You just if R.A. Dickey could win a Cy Young, let me just say, literally anything can happen. And hopefully it will. Part of the reason could be the young core. Brian's going to rejoin me, and we're going to get into that here in a couple of weeks and talk about kind of how it matches up to some of the young cores of the past for the Mets. Uh, but uh, young and old, let us know your comments at Brian Wright 86 Stern and give us your thoughts. What would have made your list and were you fair? Uh, Brian, we'll do this again soon, man. This was fun. Oh, this is a lot of fun, Casey. I'm glad we're talking about good things, palate cleansers. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to do it again. We need it. We need it for sure. Our top 10 list in the books. You could join us as always on Unfiltered, Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts. As always, we are presented by our good friends at Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.